Lori Lightfoot is here. She's the mayor of Chicago. Madam Mayor, welcome back to the program. My pleasure, Bill. How you doing uh, with all the stress of dealing with all the calamities? You know, look, I, I, I'm a firm believer that you have to play the cards that you're dealt. Um, and uh, there's good things that happen every single day that remind me why uh, I am, am grateful and humble to be uh, the leader of this great city. So I try to take the good with the bad and not let the bad overwhelm um, the good. And there's a lot of great things that are happening. Do you literally do anything to relieve stress? I do. Um, <laughs> So I, uh, I would love to say that I'm out there exercising all the time, but that would not be true. Um, although I, I have started to uh, go and uh, hit some tennis balls, which has been fun. Um, but I also just try to take some time every day uh, for myself um, to really um, get myself centered and try to put, put away the burdens of the day for at least a moment. I'm an early riser, so... I like to get up in the mornings and I check my emails. I read the papers. Um, I try to read, you know, probably four or five different papers every morning. Um, and then just get myself ready before I got to be mom and wife and mayor. Well, let's talk about some of these calamities. We should talk about the pandemic first because I'm beginning to see a little light at the end of the tunnel, or am I being too optimistic? No, I, I definitely think the light is getting brighter and closer, but I say that with some caution. Um, we really need to get our daily case count under 200, and we've been hovering in the high twos now for some time, and a tiny uptick, which is we're following very closely. Our percent positivity is, is, is good and, and solid, and all the other indicators that we follow are good, but I'm concerned about this little uptick in, in daily cases particularly in the context of looking at, for example, what's happening in Europe, and hopefully they're not going through a third surge. But we have a lot of room for optimism, but we also have to remain uh, diligent and cautious. I was at the United Center um, and went through um, that uh, mass vaccination site um, from front to front to end, and it's an incredible place. Um, the operation runs really, really smoothly, and a lot of people came up to me spontaneously and not only thanked me but talked about how well run it is. So hats off to uh, FEMA, to the National Guard, um, and also to all the city workers that are there really making sure that things run smoothly. So there are real reasons for us to be optimistic. Um, we've um, done, I think, very, very well in, in our equity-focused uh, vaccination policy, and we're starting to see um, real uptake in black and brown neighborhoods that have been hardest hit by COVID-19. You know, we feel uh, cautiously optimistic about um, starting to reopen the city um, even more. Um, and, hey, if you're a baseball fan, there are going to be fans in the stands for uh, Cubs games and Sox games. Uh, not to put a downer on it, but are the variants that are beginning to emerge uh, concerning you? Of course, they concern me. Um, but what we know is the vaccines that are on the market um, do well against the variants. Um, but also, if we continue to practice the things that we know work, like wearing a face covering um, when you go out, um, that that helps 
um, deter the spread of the variants. But diligence and caution still have to be the words of the day um, so that we don't see the variants um, overrun Chicago like they have in other places across the world. Now, what do you think of those Trump Tower workers getting the vaccine early because of someone out at Loretto Hospital, of all places? Um, well, I, I wasn't pleased about it. Um, I've spoken to the CEO, who is a very good man, and Loretto Hospital has been a tremendous partner for us. Um, but obviously, they recognize that that was a, a mistake and, and one that can't be repeated. How did that happen? I really don't know how it happened. Um, the, the Department of Public Health is doing a full investigation into this. Um, it sounds like uh, their chief operating officer lives in Trump Tower and took it upon himself to um, uh, offer this opportunity to workers there who uh, were not eligible at the time uh, to get the vaccine. Look, ultimately, we want to get everybody vaccinated, but we've got to follow the public health uh, protocols, and we can't afford to have anyone, least of all, the chief operating officer of a hospital, um, for goodness sake, um, take it upon himself to do what he wants, even if it's contrary to the public health guidance. I think they learned a very valuable lesson. I don't expect that to be repeated, but it certainly is a cautionary tale for anyone else out there who has the benefit of getting the vaccine. It's got to be used in a way that's consistent with our public health guidance. Now, the city and the schools are getting billions more from the American Recovery Act. You have warned the aldermen against viewing it as a slush fund. <laughs> Do you see any proposals from any aldermen that look like part of a slush fund? Well, we really haven't seen any specific proposals yet, and we, we will be engaging with the aldermen. We have a better sense of things, although we're still waiting on some uh, Treasury guidance um, to make sure that we have flexibility um, in the ways in which we use these monies. A lot of this money is coming into the city um, through very specific grant funding, whether it's from, through CDPH for vaccine um, and other public health-related um, activities. Our Department of Housing will get a tranche of money to address uh, affordable housing, uh, homelessness, uh, rent and mortgage um, uh, relief. Um, so some of that money is already spoken for, um, but we want to be smart and prudent about how we utilize these funds. We believe that the, the latest forecasts predict that the economy will not come back fully until probably 2024. So we've got to play the long game with this. And we also need to make sure that we don't make the mistakes of the past. Um, in following the 2008-2009 uh, recession, the city did get additional monies from the federal government, not to the magnitude that we're getting them now, but it, in, in, with due respect, wasn't prudent in the way that it used it. And then what followed? Uh, dare I say the word parking meter deal? The disastrous <laughs> parking meter deal was born of necessity because the monies that came um, following the um, uh, uh, 2008 2009 recession were spent in such a way that they spent them too quickly and didn't have money for the long term. I don't want to repeat the, the mistakes of the past, and I'm confident that my colleagues in the city council don't want to either. Um, there are things that we need to get done. There are people in our city that are really, really hurting, but we've got to do things in a way that is um, responsive to our residents' needs, but in a fiscal, fiscally responsible way. How about that guaranteed basic income idea to attack uh, 
income inequality by giving the poorest Chicagoans 500 bucks a month, 500 of them? Yeah, I mean, look, it's an interesting idea, and we're certainly looking at it. But I think the thing that we can do for our poor Chicagoans um, that is really going to benefit them for a lifetime is to get them jobs, to create opportunities uh, where they can go to work, uh, where they can have savings, where they can have benefits, um, where they can take care of themselves and their families. Um, Jobs is the answer. I see you want to reopen the high schools on April 19th, but the union, as usual, is hesitating and opposing. Where do we stand on that? What's the sticking point? Well, I think we actually have made real progress. I I think you know by now uh, the public rhetoric doesn't always match what's actually happening at the bargaining table. Um, You know, look, our schools are safe. We know that now. We've proven it. We've had um, teachers and students back in our schools now for some weeks. Um, The only question is, well, how do we deal with the more complicated um, scheduling for high school students? But I'm confident that we'll get there. And what is, is it going to be another option for parents? They can continue remote if they wish? Yes, yes. We will uh, continue with um, uh, an option. Uh, you know, look, my, my goal is to address all these issues now, um, get our kids back in school. Um, some parents aren't going to want that. They're going to want to remain remote, and we'll, we will certainly um, work to accommodate them. Uh, but ultimately, I hope that we're in a position with our public health metrics um, that by fall uh, we'll be getting everybody back into school full time. And what are the school calendars going to look like since the pandemic has upset so much? You know, that's an interesting question that we were asking uh, the Illinois State Board of Education to give us further guidance on. We haven't gotten any word from them yet that I'm aware of, um, but there's no question whatsoever we need to make accommodations over the course of the summer for those kids who have really been hardest hit uh, by the uh, learning loss, and that's real. So we've been working um, on a plan uh, for weeks now, and we'll be rolling that out shortly. Can you tell us what you'd like to see? Well, look, I think it's got to take some form of giving extra supports over the course of the summer. Um, so the, the, the earn while you learn is, a, um, is an option that, that feels appealing uh, to me. Um, but I don't want to get ahead of my team. I think they're going to be teeing up a, a number of different um, options for, for me and for CPS, obviously, to, uh, to consider. But I think we've got to recognize the fact that this has been a very, very tough year for learning um, throughout our city, not just for CPS. And we've got to do whatever we can to make up that lost ground. What is earn while you learn? It means that um, we would give, yeah, and this is really for our older students, we'd give them the opportunity uh, to have uh, meaningful summer employment, um, but also um, fold into that um, learning opportunities that would match up with some of the, the coursework that they'd need to be, um, that they'd ordinarily be getting um, in, uh, in school. We're talking issues with Mayor Lightfoot. Let's talk about police oversight now. This has been a key thing to your campaign, but keeps getting delayed in the city council. What is the sticking point here as to why you can't move forward with one of the forms of police oversight that is pending? Well, I think that the the reason is, is that this is going to be one of the most consequential actions that we will take related to local policing. There's a lot of nuances that are involved. 
Um, and we want to make sure that we, we get this right. And um, I'm not, I have never been supportive of the CPAC uh, plan for a host of reasons. So really focusing on GAPA. GAPA has a lot of really strong um, aspects to it, but there are a lot of open questions that have to be answered. So we're doing a lot of listening and talking uh, to members of the city council, to other stakeholders. Um, and we're um, soon we'll be making a, a specific proposal that I think takes a lot of the best and strongest aspects of the GAPA proposal, but fills in, no pun intended, the gaps that um, were not and have not been answered uh, by the, the GAPA draft ordinance. Yeah, what is in the gap? Well, things like, for example, what will be the governance structure of, of an interim um, interim board? The, the ordinance that um, was before the city council a couple weeks back actually didn't answer that question and left it to some other day um, to be decided. Uh, that, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm not used to seeing ordinances come up for a vote that have uh, TBD in effect in them. Um, I think we've got to resolve the issue of um, who makes final policy, um, particularly given that we're in a consent decree where uh, all policy um, is scrutinized uh, by the independent monitor and her team. So there are just some key considerations that have to be uh, addressed that have not been fully addressed in the proposals that are currently pending, but I think in my mind have to be uh, before the city council uh, votes one way or the other. So I'm confident that we'll get there. You're not going to give up, are you, on uh, controlling policy? Well, look, um, I see this as somebody who's been around law enforcement and local policing for 20-plus years. Formulating policy for police departments is challenging. Um, I'm a lawyer. I'm a former federal prosecutor. I work within the police department. I've done police oversight um, work uh, for a number of years. So a significant amount of my professional career has been revolving around these issues. It's not easy. It's challenging. Um, there's a lot of nuances to it. And at the end of the day, my hope is that we can come up with a structure um, that um, the, the uh, governance board will have a substantial um, say and what policy looks like. But if there's a dispute, and that's really where the rubber meets the road, um, I, I, I think that we have to come up with a formulation um, that um, gives responsibility um, where it should lie, which is with the department and, and, and ultimately the mayor's office, um, because we're the ones that are going to be on the hook for liability in the event that there's a policy that goes awry. awry. And that's why I have such strong feelings about it. I know the independent monitor also has very strong feelings um, about it because it impinges upon her jurisdiction. When these proposals were initially talked about, the Chicago Police Department was not in a consent decree. We are now, and we have to deal with that reality. Sounds like you're far apart. I don't, I don't think ultimately we will be. Um, but we've got to all come to the table um, with a, a spirit of goodwill and understanding that everybody else at that table comes uh, with goodwill. But I think, we'll, I think we'll get there. It's hard, though. If it was easy, it would have been done already. Yeah. Uh, gun violence continues to be the scourge of the city. Is yep. any of it uh, because we're loosening up on criminal justice reforms? I think a big part of the challenge that we are seeing is that we haven't had any criminal um, trials in the state courts. It's been almost 12 months since the state court trial system shut down. 
And we've got a lot of people that are out um, on pretrial release that are dangerous people um, that are charged with murder, that are charged with, you know, aggregated assault, which is uh, a sanitized version of I shot at you, tried to kill you, but I missed you um, or I hit you and didn't kill you. So there are a lot of there are way too many dangerous people that are out on the street on pretrial release. In my view, we pre-pandemic in February of uh, 2020, we had about 1,200 people on electronic monitoring in the county that's run through the sheriff and the court. That number ballooned to over 5,000 with zero additional resources available uh, to help manage that swelling population of pretrial um, releasees. And that's a problem. And then, then when, when you couple that with the fact that um, these cases are not moving through the system as they should, justice delayed is justice denied. People in the community have to believe that the criminal justice system sees and recognizes them, particularly the victims of violent crime. And when they see people who have committed terrible acts against them or their neighbors back out on the street 24 or 48 hours later, that sends a horrible, chilling message to the victims of crime across our city. So we've got to get the criminal trials back up and operational and look, the pandemic has affected every aspect of public safety. And public safety isn't just about the police. It's about those community organizations that provide supports for you know, individuals and families. They've all been affected by COVID-19. The, the criminal courts, the prosecutors, everything, every part of the public safety ecosystem has been dramatically impacted. We're opening back up. People are coming back to full strength, but we absolutely must have criminal trials in Cook County. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. I should ask you about the big national story about Governor Cuomo in New York. Uh, earlier, I asked uh, if he deserved to be reelected. Now I should ask, with pressure building on him, should he simply resign, as even his fellow New York Democrats say he should? Well, look, I'm, I'm anxious to see the results of the, um, the New York Attorney General's uh, independent review. I have been following the story very closely. I'm very concerned about the stories um, that have been coming out from young women who um, have alleged that he has um, sexually harassed them or otherwise asked very inappropriate questions in the workplace. But I also don't want to forget the fact that there were a number of people who died in nursing homes and congregate settings and that it looks like those numbers were not fully told and transparent at the time. That's another big piece of this. It's equally uh, disturbing. So you're not willing to go as far as, say, Senator Schumer is that he's lost his ability to govern and should just quit? Look, as a, as a mayor of Chicago, I, I don't walk in his shoes and I don't work in, walk in the shoes of any other New York elected official. So far be it for me uh, to be able to render that kind of judgment. The allegations are extraordinarily troubling all the way around. There's no question about it. All of us as elected officials, we can only do our jobs effectively if we have legitimacy. And when you, the minute you lose that legitimacy, you cannot – you cannot function effectively. And I think the governor has to ask himself um, a, a, a series of very serious questions about whether or not he is going to be able to fulfill his um, oath and his responsibilities um, to um, 
the residents of New York as governor under the current cloud that he's clearly under. And that'll be the judgment of voters there uh, to render. But the allegations, both on the um, sexual harassment allegations, as well as what he and his team did um, regarding the um, deaths of nursing home residents, are quite disturbing. Public corruption back home here persists. Uh, recently, we had the indictment of Eddie Acevedo, the former Chicago cop who became a state rep. He's a name that pops up in the ComEd uh, scandal. And two of his sons, uh, assuming they're innocent until proven guilty, I do want to ask you a question I ask many of my guests. And, and that is, why do, why do so many politicians just keep stealing I mean, you would think with all the indictments over all the decades that they wouldn't do it. But, you know, as the U.S. attorney says, it's a stubborn problem. And you used to be a prosecutor who uh, sent Alderman uh, Virgil Jones to prison. In your experience, what's the answer to this question? Why do they just keep stealing? Um, I would say it boils down to arrogance and stupidity. You think, Bill, you'll remember the whole Secretary of State scandal back in the day when Secretary of State's workers were soliciting bribes to give CDLs. I remember I was in the office at the time, um, and there was a circumstances where literally the FBI was in <laughs> was in the front part of a, a building and out in the parking lot where the tests were being uh, rendered. You had workers literally – in the same facility that the FBI was in, continuing to solicit bribes. Now, if that's not the height of arrogance and stupidity, I don't know what. But, you know, look, it's there are people who are in public service for the right reasons, and there are people who are in public service to ingratiate themselves um, and um, obviously increase the size of their bank account and power. I mean, power and money is very seductive. We, we all know that. It's, it's the, it is the, the, the root of many, many evils going back to biblical times. I don't personally get it, um, but um, we, part of the challenge is we've got to hold ourselves as elected officials to a higher standard. And that has got to be the cultural change that we have to bring uh, to governance. And there hasn't been enough of that, um, I don't think, anywhere in our state. And there's more work to do, but it really does provide an opportunity for us to do better. I now hear amongst my fellow electeds here in the city a recognition of that issue and that they don't look good in orange as uh, some joke. Um, but I think there is, there is a, a, a awakening of the challenges of trying to do things the old way. Um, and I think there are more and more people who are recognizing that that old way of doing things, the status quo um, doesn't serve anybody well and people don't want to go to jail. And I, I will have to say it's distressing to me that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI are, in effect, our ethics department. Um, but until we write our own ship and do the right thing and, and really call out um, our colleagues who are engaged in um, the slippery slope that leads to this kind of, um, this kind of criminal conduct, 
we're still going to have to rely upon the U.S. attorney and the FBI to dangle that sort of Damocles um, to get people to do the right thing. I hope that we will see in our lifetime that that level of corruption is really rare, um, if not non-existent. That's Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Madam Mayor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Bill. Take care of yourself. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with uh, Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. She covers Washington. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey there, Bill. Heather Sharone of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. And sports analyst Cheryl Ray Stout. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Bill. We're all uh, doing this roundtable as the Illinois game is going on <laughs> on Friday afternoon, so all of us have kind of one eye and maybe an ear or two to the Illinois game. But let's uh, talk politics and how the uh, the business and society and everything is beginning to reopen, Ray. Uh, politically, how's it playing for Pritzker? So far, so good, or is there trouble? Well, it will play better for him the more things get open quickly, right? So right now they're talking about clearing the way for residents 16 and older outside of Chicago to get a, get a COVID vaccine beginning April 12th, which is uh, good news. And the new date uh, is ahead of uh, Biden's May 1 deadline, and he's going to beat that uh, deadline for $100 million. Uh, probably has beaten it already this week. So what we uh, have here is uh, a, still a divided state on this. Downstate is still furious at the way uh, Pritzker has uh, handled this because they think that they should have had more uh, ability to uh, move around freely and that uh, some of the precautionary measures that uh, a lot of people think are common sense should not have applied to some of the places downstate because they don't have the same kind of population density that places like Chicago do. So he's still going to suffer from whatever he does. No matter how he redeems himself, there will still be some blowback from downstate. And the state legislator, Bailey, has already announced he's running for uh, Pritzker's job. Well, Heather, uh, how's it playing for Mayor Lightfoot so far? Well, it puts her in a difficult position because it means that people who live outside Chicago will be eligible for the vaccine uh, before those who live inside Chicago. And that is going to add to uh, a lot of frustration, even as the mayor works very hard to make sure that black and Latino Chicagoans um, who are at most at risk of severe illness uh, get first crack at that vaccine. But we also heard the governor say that he thought it would, you know, encourage the vaccination process to just make everybody available, uh, eligible for it at the same time, which is entirely the opposite approach that the mayor has taken. Lynn, how's it playing for Joe Biden? Well, actually, pretty good. As we speak Friday, he just announced that he hit his goal of 100 million shots in arms. He said you know, the original goal was to have that in the first 100 days. Now, if he hits that goal Saturday, which is the projection, uh, he will be doing this on day 58 of his presidency. Also, uh, it, the... The COVID equity questions that you just discussed, they will diminish pretty soon because of the uh, massive availability of vaccines and more vaccinators. 
And again, at the uh, White House COVID briefing on Friday, they talked about stepping up efforts on that front. And as you know, there is a pledge in the Biden administration to have every, almost everyone vaccinated uh, pretty soon. By that, I mean May. Uh, the other reason this might play well for Biden is that the Center for Disease Control on Friday said classrooms can work with students based just three feet apart. And though we're waiting to get all their full reaction from teachers and teachers unions, I'm not sure how this will play with the CTU, it does make it easier to open schools. And opening schools is one of the keys to the Biden administration uh, priorities in his first 100 days. So for the moment, I would say uh, the handling of the COVID crisis, both on the vaccination front, the testing front, uh, opening up testing sites is there, and these issues about uh, the problems that people have in getting vaccinated, it seems like they will be taken care of within a few weeks. So if that is so, the political damage, if any, to Biden will be diminished. And Cheryl, how do you think it's going to work for professional sports? Well, what we're seeing right now is we're opening up to fans being in the stands, you know, of a small percentage right now. But we're hearing that the leagues are looking to get vaccinations sooner than later. So as that happens, we'll probably won't see the casualties we saw in games not being played or being postponed. And that's a big key because one of the things about not being vaccinated is the concerns. They do this testing every day. They have to quarantine. We've seen in the NC2A tournament, they've already had eight players that got knocked out right away. So the, the, the concern is if it doesn't happen fast enough, how will it affect the games going forward? And if it, if it seems like it's going in the direction we're seeing right now, it should be a positive for them. And then you can start seeing more fans, especially with baseball starting on April 1st, you're going to see more fans being able to come, you know, and, and then also the, the money gets generated and, and things seem to kind of go back to normal at that point. Yeah, it kind of sounds like on all fronts it's so far so good, although a little political bump on the road here and there. Uh, Ray, down in Springfield, the Democrats continue to love to spend money. They got together in person in the House this week and passed the final pillar of the Black Caucus set of bills on their agenda, this one about health care, that the Republicans were estimating, while it's only a framework, if you appropriated all the money, it would cost between 5 and 12 maybe $15 billion. Um, Ray, do you think that the Democrats are just tone deaf to the need to not continue spending like drunken sailors? <laughs> well, I think that they have uh, an agenda that they're trying to put together, and they want to do things that they've been denied in the past, and they think that uh, this is their opening shot to do it when they have two houses that are both uh, overwhelmingly Democrat and a governor who's Democrat, too, and they both need each other for the new uh, election coming up in two years. We were talking uh, earlier in the show to uh, Mayor Lightfoot 
about uh, Heather, the uh, guaranteed basic income idea, which she essentially brushes off and says, well, the more important thing to do is get him jobs. She's warned the aldermen not to consider the uh, largesse coming in from the American Recovery Act as a slush fund. Do you think there's danger at City Hall, as there always is, that they too will want to spend like drunken sailors? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have uh, a bunch of aldermen who had to take a very difficult vote to raise property taxes just a few months ago, and they see that this stimulus, this relief package, is a way for them to sort of get help directly to their constituents. And it's going to be a very fierce battle, I think, on the city council about how to spend that $1.8 or $1.9 billion. Mayor Lightfoot uh, said on our program the other night, Chicago Tonight, that she thought that the highest priority had to be in paying off the debt that the 2021 budget called for. Uh, but that is not very popular with aldermen who want to have something to go to voters for in the not-too-distant future. And, Lynn, where you are out in Washington, the Republicans used to be fiscally responsible, but anymore it seems like deficits don't matter. So uh, how do you see the Democrats who are now in control behaving on spending? Well, they, we we, uh, we know what just happened, and that is uh, with Democratic votes only, this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill just passed. So I think we'll know a little more when it comes to infrastructure spending, how big that package will be. And if no Republicans are going to get behind it, I think the measure is going to be bigger because that's the uh, that is the view of Democrats is to probably go big on this. If there's a chance of getting Republican votes, if you trim it a bit, not all, because then you, you have to get, let the minority dictate to the majority. But if there is a way of doing a balancing act, uh, then maybe we'll see some trims. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all answer to you on this one, Bill. I think it depends on what the legislation is. I invited Cheryl on to tell us how good the White Sox are going to be this year and how bad the Bears are going to be. So, Cheryl, let's begin with the White Sox. How good are they going to be for Ray and me? I think you should be very excited. Their starting rotation, as far as their pitchers go, is going to be lights out. You have three Cy Young contenders, Lucas Giolito, Dallas Keiko, Lance Lynn. Dylan seems to be their fourth guy. And, and, and Bill, I'm telling you, he's improved a lot. He's not he's throwing strikes. Then you have – and you know, Carlos Rodan will probably be in the mix to be a fifth star. But their bullpen is going to be phenomenal. They've got guys that can top 100 miles an hour, you know, from the right and the left. So one concern I have is their catching because Yasmani Grandal is just getting back into shape because he had some knee issues. But Zach Collins has really stepped up. And then you have their lineup. Their lineup is, is you know, pretty solid. You know, you've got Adam Eaton. You've got uh, Tim Anderson. You've got Aloy Menes. You've got Louis, Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal. And, and you've got the, the rating uh, MVP in Jose Abreu. So there's a lot of positives about this team right now. And with Tony La Russa, there's no negative words that I'm hearing from players about him. Yeah. I'm in there. He, and, you know, Bill, you you and I both have known Tony for years. <laughs> and, and, and he knows how to tap into these guys. Even though at 76 years old, and everyone keeps mentioning it over and over again, he still has the wherewithal and the genius 
of a Hall of Fame manager that he is. Ray, I want to believe all that, but what do you think? Well, Tony, Tony's had about a decade to rest up for this uh, event, so he can he can bring it together. I mean, uh, I think it's positives all the way here. Um, I'm less uh, enamored by what the Cubs have been doing, and certainly as you uh, teed it up regarding the Bears, that's uh, something that makes me want to get into a fetal position. <laughs> uh, well, let's move to the Cubs. I feel like that right now. <laughs> let's let's move to the Cubs. How much uh, how much rebuilding are we looking at for this year, and should we lower our expectations, Cheryl? They're having a good spring, but with that said, once you get into the season, I'm concerned about the pitching staff. They have a, you know, Kyle Hendricks is great, you know, Jake Arrieta is coming back. But the thing is, they're soft tossers, and they have to pitch to contact, which means you better your defense has got to be on their toes because they're not going to strike out people. Here's the other concern that Cub fans have to be worried about. They have three players that are in the walk years, Anthony Rizzo, Javi Baez, and Chris Bryant. If they don't produce well early, you can look for one of those guys, more likely Chris Bryant, to be traded. So that's, that's the problem is, you know, facing this team right now. They're, you know, Wilson Contreras, you've got some real positives with this team as far as what they can do, but the current concerns is what's going to happen with this team because they're not spending the money. Ricketts has, has closed the door on spending money. Hmm. So, Heather, you're a Cubs fan. Is that too pessimistic, what Cheryl is saying, or no? No, I don't think so. I feel the same way about the team. And, you know, really the departure of um, John Lester uh, was really sort of, I think, the death knell, I think, for that World Series team. And I've said it to my friends, and I'll say it here, I think a lot of us expected uh, more than one World Series. Perhaps we were tempting the cursed gods with that expectation, but it seems like a real long shot now. Um, and uh, it's just too bad because because those were good young players that seems like they had a lot of winning years in them. Well, let's move to the Bears, Cheryl. How, how bad is it going to be? Oh, it's going to be tough. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky's gone. He's signing with the Buffalo Bills. They've uh, signed Andy Dalton, who a lot of Bears fans are going, oh, you're kidding. 32 years old, he's a serviceable quarterback. Not great, not horrible, just serviceable. But here's the here's the problem. They are going to release Kyle Fuller, their all-pro cornerback, because of salary cap issues. And the other player that could be also gone is Akeem Hicks. You're talking about two Pro Bowl players who are very, very important to this defensive scheme. And the question mark is, can Ryan Pace figure this out? Because he's going to draft a quarterback in the draft this year, no doubt about it. But this is going to be an interesting season. Well, uh, this sounds like a management problem. Is Ryan (laughs) Pace just not good enough for the Bears, or what's going on? I think you're right. I I think uh, when you make a mistake with the quarterback, not once, not twice, but possibly three times, you're in trouble. That's the job. That's the most important position that you have to get right. He got it wrong when he drafted Mitchell Trubisky. He traded up for him. He got it wrong when he signed Nick Foles last year. Could he have gotten it wrong again this year? Possibly. So he, he tried to get Russell Wilson. He actually, Russell Wilson's agent came out and said that they offered three first-round picks, a third-round pick, and two players. But the Seahawks are not going to give up Russell Wilson right now. 
Heather, I've always thought that uh, the Bears are too much a family business, and we had to sell it to somebody who knows how to run, you know, professional football. What do you think? Uh, the ghost of Papa Bear Hallis is uh, spinning, spinning, spinning. Uh, but, man, especially when you remember that the Bears could have drafted Patrick Mahomes and then they didn't, and now we're playing, you know, which journeyman quarterback is going to lead the Bears. Uh, it's, it's a little bit tough, tough to stomach um, and a long way from the glory days of the 85 Bears, of course. Yeah. Okay, Cheryl, how about the Bulls, they uh, look good and bad and not consistent. How do you see them play it out? I think one of the things we're going to look forward to, what are they going to do on the 25th for the trade deadline? Will they be trading or will they be acquiring? They have some good pieces right now. Billy Donovan's done a great job. I mean, you, you look at the don't look at the record, look at what he's doing with players. He's developing the players. He's developing a system. And the thing is, some of these players aren't good enough. But Zach Levine, he's, he's really proved his, his weight there. Uh, love Thad Young. He's having a career year. And in his 14th year in the league, he's still playing like he's 20 years old. So you have a lot of positive there. They have to learn how to close out games. They have to learn how not to turn the ball over, and they got to stop following the three-point shooters. Those are things that they have to take care of. And how about the Blackhawks? They're stumbling right now. I mean, you, no one expected them to be where they were at just a, a couple of weeks ago, you know. But but right now, it's it's a matter of you've got a lot of young players that are, that you know they're getting the the peaks and the valleys of being young. Uh, their goaltending has been pretty good, much better than anyone expected. And the question mark is, will they make the postseason? Patrick Kane's having a, a, a terrific year, and we all wonder and hope at some point, some point, will Jonathan Taves return. That's Cheryl Raystad with a complete picture of uh, Chicago professional teams. Uh, thanks to her, also to uh, Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Tribune, and Heather Cerrone of WTTW. Up next, my colleague Kim Gordon. A new study out says Chicagoans lost 86 hours in traffic last year. How could that be when we're in a pandemic? The traffic wasn't that bad. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly isn't uh, good to be near the top of that list. And, uh, you know, we've always uh, fared pretty poorly on the traffic front. There's a lot of factors. Of course, we're a giant city is one of them. Uh, But our expressway design has just always created problems. We've never built the Crosstown Expressway. The Kennedy doesn't have enough lanes. And, of course, uh, the Jane Adams has been under construction forever. So you put all that together plus a pandemic, and it hasn't been particularly good. So what can we learn from this pandemic when it comes to traffic? Well, some really interesting things are happening. For one, the rush hour peak, especially the morning peak, isn't what it used to be. It's much faster to drive at, you know, 745, 8 in the morning. Uh, and that's the good side. And uh, and we're seeing less uh, uh, snarls, even in the evening rush. But the problem now is people are actually driving more. And uh, uh, they're driving at different times of the day. So it might have used to have been easy to drive between you know, 9.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. We're seeing you know traffic tie-ups and accident happens and the expressways or the, the arterials are backed up midday with the extra traffic. And that's, uh, that's driving up congestion numbers. So do you think these traffic patterns are going to stay like this moving forward? Or are we going to see a reversal to the old ways, you know, afternoon drive, morning drive? Yeah, you know, people will return to the trains uh, That's and the buses. That's been one of the big uh, negatives here. Of course, uh, transit use had a, light, a nice recovery after Liberty, and then it just flattened, and people are, 
are not coming back as quick. We think that's going to happen around mid-May or June when we start to see normalcy downtown. That'll be good news. Uh, we'll also see offices reopen, so we'll have a little more of the traditional commute. And I think, uh, you know, fuel prices have actually inched up again, too, and that actually has a bigger fa- effect than people think. And uh, so I think it's uh, uh, likely going to get a little better in the next few months. And so where do you see traffic change? I mean, will the pandemic change traffic patterns forever? Is this something that's just a short-lived thing? Or are we going to learn from this and be able to move forward with it? Or we're just stuck in bad traffic if we live in this area and that's just how it is? <laughs> it, is a, it is a question on everybody's mind because they're building a life uh, often around car travel. and, and uh, But a couple things. We know... Uh, there are some pretty big improvement projects uh, underway. You know, the Tollway Commission has been, been quite good about adding lanes, and we may have a bypass around O'Hara that's built that's going to help Jane Adams get close to being done. Uh, the studies have shown that when people don't drive to work, they drive more at other times. They kind of offset their behavior with more driving. So I think we'll see things settle down a bit. You know, but I will say the pandemic does have us transportation planners nervous that, you know, we could see a shift toward more automobile travel, and that uh, and that's not going to make things easier. What happens to public transportation now? Are we ever going to see the crowds we used to see? Well, we sure hope so, and we know transit is going to have to uh, reinvent itself. And I think the good news is the stimulus package. Most of the system is going to be able to still operate, and then we can change it from a position of strength rather than from a position of crisis, which is much harder. And I think, for example, we look at our commuter train system, we may have to have more frequent trains, maybe shorter trains that run more express during the middle of the day. Because people are going to be going down to their office and coming back at different times outside of rush hour. We're seeing some other cities do that, like Boston and Toronto, uh, moving toward that regional rail model. And uh, and so I think uh, we're going to see transit change. The next year, of course, it's not going to be back to where it was, but we sure hope in a few years it can uh, get close to all the old numbers. Would a, fe- would a federal infrastructure bill help this at all, help the situation? Oh, yeah. How yeah, would yeah, that help? help? And, you know, our state uh, uh, has fallen a bit behind on the pavement quality. You know, a lot of expressways need rebuilding. And it's a scary concept, like the Stevenson Expressway uh, is going to need to be rebuilt. Uh, you know, the, we did the Dan Ryan uh, much of it a few years ago, but there's other parts that, that have to be uh, fixed. And we have some improvements that uh, we hope to make, as I mentioned, the bypass and and uh, quite a few new interchanges and things which will help. And Illinois just doesn't have the money. We have to uh, rely on Washington. And the stimulus will ease that by making the local match less severe. And, of course, our transit projects are a big part of this, uh, the red line uh, modernization, the red-purple modernization, and uh, uh, some of the other uh, uh, new uh, you know, improvements, new stations that are planned. It's uh, it's pretty exciting if this infrastructure bill moves ahead. So if you had a crystal ball, where do you where do you see us in five to ten years from now? You know, I see downtown uh, mostly bouncing back. I don't know that we're going to have the same number of office workers down there, but there's been a remarkable strength in the uh, condo uh, and rental market downtown. So I think we'll see the loop come a bit of a 24-hour entertainment center with, you know, lots of office and uh, but maybe less traditional commuting. Uh, I also think that uh, uh, we have a really good transit system, and and it's going to uh, you're going to see some new things have to come out of it. Uh, but this work from home thing clearly is going to uh, change our lives, and that's uh, going to mean just more general traffic midday 
unless uh, rush hour peaking. And it's uh, I'm hoping to put the genie back in the bottle because people seem to like uh, that flexible work arrangement. So the bottom line is if you drive in Chicago, you still need to have a lot of patience. <laughs> patience may be required, especially uh, in the next year or two. All right. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you.